0: i'm a christian i'm engaging because i'm a christian a follower of jesus this is like forms my entire worldview. and you're and, and part of that worldview is respecting people of other faiths to loving my neighbor the good samaritan like to to be radically inclusive and i think that's a fundamental part of american democracy as well
1: welcome to baptist without an adjective a podcast of word and way I'm your host, Word & Way Editor and President, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word & Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at WordAndWay.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. He's a progressive writer and activist. He's the author of a brand new book that he'll be talking about in this interview, Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. just came out on September 15th. He's a fellow in the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative with the Center for American Progress and founder of the Resistance Praise. We are in the midst of a lot of politics. This is a heavy political season And Guthrie's going to be talking about some of these issues and the perspective which he comes to this. And, you know, we are a nonpartisan program. We've had Baptists on from across the political spectrum, as well as, of course, a number of other different ways that Baptists are diverse from denominations and ethnicity and nationality. But I think regardless of your politics that you will find this to be an interesting conversation and a helpful conversation to learn more about a progressive Christian vision of politics what that would look like in our society and why progressive Christians should be speaking out more. So here's my conversation with Guthrie Grace Fitzsimmons, author of Just Faith. Well, first of all, I know that this has been a, a crazy and often difficult year for a lot of people. And so, how are you doing personally? I hope that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy.
0: Thank you for asking that question. I like everyone, you know, have been trying to make uh, the best of these strange times. I'm fortunate that no one kind of uh, close to me has died of the virus. And at the same time, it's just so much tragedy going on with the virus. And here in Louisville, with the uprising over uh, the murder of Breonna Taylor, and then all of the uncertainty about the election i'm very scared about the election and what's going to happen with like this unprecedented these unprecedented times so there's a lot of fear that i feel but uh, personally i'm i'm grateful to to you know my fam- i'm i'm going to go meet my nephew next week um who i haven't had a chance to meet who's 6 months old now um which is really sad that i haven't met him but uh, <laughs> we're going to make it happen socially distant so i'm i'm doing okay very good well, we're going to talk about your book, Just
1: Faith, in a moment, but before we get to that, I wonder if you could introduce yourself a little bit, a little bit of your, your faith journey and and what you're up to when you're not writing a book or launching a book this week.
0: Sure. I grew up in Houston. I'm the son of two labor union organizers, so was involved in politics a lot growing up and then very involved in uh, my Methodist church as well. And so I just, I love church so much, youth group and mission trips and all all the kind of church activities. And it's like, I want to go to Methodist University. And I was really engaged in politics because of my family. And so I just kind of saw this uh, intersection of faith and politics from an early age and was like, that's what I want to do. And I didn't know exactly what that looked like. It's a not a field, um, that is very well defined or, but I kind of made it, I've made it work. Um, I went to college and studied politics and international affairs, and then later went to seminary and have worked kind of on different issue areas and started and done some writing about faith and politics. I started a daily devotional and now work, uh, full time at the center for American progress, which is a big progressive think tank in Washington, DC. Although I'm in Louisville and we, I'm on the faith team where we study, write about, advocate for policies uh, that affect religion and faith communities, kind of in all facets of domestic policy and foreign policy. So, yeah, I, I've been, I felt called to this work of like how people put their faith into action. Growing up in Houston, I had a my congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee talked about her faith a lot, and that was just a very common thing, and then I kind of discovered that it wasn't very common for progressives to talk about their faith, (laughs) that disconnect has been driving me ever since.
1: Well, you mentioned a moment ago, the police killing of Breonna Taylor. And I wanted to ask you about that, because this has been a a significant year across the country with incidents of racial injustices, protests in the streets, and Louisville has been the site of one of the, the more high profile Cases Uh, and it's you know has sparked a lot of local protest, obviously, in addition to what what's been happening nationally. And so, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what what the situation has been like there in Louisville.
0: Yeah, the the situation um, we're we're currently in this kind of state of unease. Just yesterday, there was a settlement between the family of Breonna Taylor and the city of Louisville, and then but there's still this investigation that's now with the state attorney general, and so there was a lot of activism. And it was, at least for me, the first few protests were pretty large, but it was also kind of at the height of um, like COVID and all the worries about the pandemic. And so we, I mean, people were very masked up at, at all the protests I went to, but there, there were a lot of protests. And there's been a kind of constant presence downtown right across from City Hall, where there's a whole kind of like makeshift mo- It's one of the most beautiful kind of I've been at protests my entire life, but there's this whole like uh, memorial that's built up that's very organic to Breonna Taylor. There, there was a her family sponsored a a balloon liftoff that to kind of uh, remember her. And there's been so many uh, local organizations doing activism and national groups. And actually, the first person that texted me about going down to one of the protests was my pastor at Highland Baptist Church here, and and our church has been trying to. Get involved. Some people are involved in the bail fund and doing jail support for when protesters are um, arrested. And then our we we did a vigil on our lawn of the church where we uh, nailed in crosses for people who have been um, the victims of police killings. And so there's there's been a lot of activism, Black Lives Matter, Louisville. And then I kind of my niche is the the faith based stuff, and so that I've. I'm um, hopeful that uh, a lot of different churches in Louisville, oh, and the Presbyterian church is based here in Louisville, and there was just a big march from the Presbyterian headquarters downtown. We processed from there down to uh, Injustice Square, what people are calling it, and uh, the memorial then kind of uh, circled the memorial and had a moment of silence. So there's been a lot of faith-based activism here, and I've, I've seen that across, like everywhere there's been a kind of Black Lives Matter protest. I've seen photos and been connected to clergy and faith communities who are also involved
1: yeah and obviously that's something that is near and dear to your book that will kind of move that conversation of highlighting but this is something that is sometimes lost in in the media is the faith-based activism uh, one of the things we did in the july issue of Word and Way magazine was we had photos of several baptist pastors participating in different places across the country in a local black lives matter protest and, and of course highland baptist church has a a long history of engaging in this topic uh, you mentioned putting up the crosses to recognize those locally killed and I know that's something you're all your church has done every advent uh, as part of that is to recognize a cross for everyone in the community who had died that year from gun violence I actually wrote about that a few years ago back when joe phelps was pastor and, and talked to him w- with that and so i know that that's been something that's that's there in the dna of the church as well as you and a lot of other progressive faith activists that this isn't just something that has popped up in 2020,
0: right? And that's what attracted me to uh, Highland Baptist in the first place. I I had a long kind of tumultuous leaving the Methodist Church where I was raised and went back several generations. But uh, when my husband and I moved to Louisville, I was we were you know looking for a faith community. And Highland Baptist has such a long history, and, and Joe was so people you know we have a new pastor and we just called the. Joe retired a few years ago, we just called a new pastor who started a few weeks ago. But uh, when I moved to Louisville, people who were Catholic, not religious at all, everyone knew that uh, Joe was very active and the church was very active. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool church. And you get there and there are people like me that came from different traditions. There are a lot of people that have been Baptist their entire life, but then there are other people, they're very inclusive of, of people that are coming from other places.
1: Well, let's talk about your book, Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. It just came out September 15th. So it's brand new in the world. So first of all, congratulations on the book. I know that that's always, uh, there's a lot of work over years to go into this type of production. And then now it's finally out in the world, which I'm sure is exciting to see in, in real life. We're looking at each other on the screen. People are just listening to us, but I can see you've got if we were on television, you you have your room set up right. I can see you you're ready for your your on-screen interviews. You've got the book propped up behind you. And I and I have my my advanced copy that you sent me here as well and enjoyed look reading through it. But I wonder, first of all, if you could just kind of give us the pitch. What's the what's the key argument? What's the key reason why you wrote this book?
0: As I've met so many progressive Christians all across the country, my work has taken me from coast to coast and many places in between. I get a sense that progressive Christians feel very alone, whether they're in their own churches, like, and they feel the church is more conservative than where uh, they are personally, or their reading of the Bible. And then, as churches, I, I feel like people say we're the one kind of liberal church in town, or we're the one, we're the outliers. I felt this in the Met- in the churches I've been a part of in the Methodist Church, and now I, in seminary, I worked at a church um, that was in the process of. Dually affiliating, like moving between denominations, between the art, the reformed church in America and the United Church of Christ. And now in a Baptist church, I hear all the time about how we're the outliers. We're not like other cooperative Baptist churches, I hear this. And yet there are so many churches in every major city and, and most smaller towns across this country, you will find people who are engaging in this work of social and economic justice because they're followers of Jesus. And so, That's the kind of problem I was trying to address this, this distance between what people feel and reality. And so I wanted to encourage people that there are, you know, there are millions and millions of progressive Christians all across this country. Many of them have left organized churches because with good reason, because the church is often uh, the institutional church often doesn't reflect the, uh, you know, the values that that progressive Christians believe in. And many of them are in churches still. And so uh, I wanted to encourage people to feel a little less alone and to also try to spur people to be a little bit more vocal about their Christian faith and how it inspires um, their life and their work. Because I hear so often, I'm a Christian, but not that kind, or I'm not I'm not (laughs) I'm a different kind of Christian or I'm a different I'm not like them kind of always centering very conservative uh, expressions of our faith. And, you know, here in here in, at Highland Baptist, I hear often we're not like Southern Seminary, which is, of course, very close to our church. We're not like them. And, and I'm like, that's not, that's not, uh, I don't think that's helpful. It's not healthy. It's not reality. There are lots of other churches all across the country. So that's why I wanted to write the book. A lo- I call it a love letter to my fellow progressive Christians. So you think faith should
1: impact politics, but you're not a conservative white evangelical Christian. <laughs> I know that might. Yeah, I say that. Yes, I know that that might. I mean, that's a big part of your 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 point of your book is kind of pushing back against this maybe media overemphasis. That prioritizes overprioritizes the voices of conservative white evangelicals when it comes to talking about matters of faith and politics, and that's something you've written about and talked about before, and it, and it comes out in your book as well. You definitely, I mean, that is definitely what you see as part of one of the problems: is that a lot of voices of faith are left out of the the story.
0: Exactly, and how we get at this kind of meta perception is difficult because there's uh, the media that covers the faith communities and. For instance, after the 2016 election, we heard a lot about the 81% of white evangelicals that voted for President Trump. We heard very little about other, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about other Christians and other Christians, the majority supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. And that block of people was twice as large as the white evangelical voting block. And that's just not a story we're told and it contributes to everybody's daily interactions now this can get very like academic media criticism and it's that's not what I'm trying to do here I'm trying to say this impacts people's day-to-day life it impacts me telling my neighbor you know where am I going on Sunday you know I'm going to church and people because of the media perception automatically start thinking about conservative evangelicalism and so it has a real tangible, real world impact, this media balance. And then, but I, when I tell reporters this and I, I've come to know, I think every national religion reporter in the country, there are not that many of them. And they say, well, the the conservative Christians are louder. And so it's this paradox of like, well, they're louder because other people don't wanna identify as Christians. And then uh, they're, they just, that this cycle continues and continues. And so I'm encouraging both people and the impulse not to talk about your faith, I should say, and I write about in the book, comes from a good place of not wanting to like, you know, be hypocritical or or that your words should, I mean, your actions should live, uh, be the evidence of your faith. So it's both the the media kind of piece, but then also people encouraging people to speak out more, which I think from to to give some credit to reporters and people that work in, in the media, they need things to actually cover. They can't just cover over. They can't write over and over again that these people exist. That's not a news story. So that's one of the things that you do in the in the book,
1: and I wanted to highlight you you are are, are kind of pushing back in a couple d- different directions. So you know, on the one hand, you're noting that as a progressive Christian, that you get pushed back from the secular left, and then on the other hand, also from the religious right. And so you ha- you have a chapter where you talk about both of these. Uh, and I'll just do a couple of sentences and kind of see if you can kind of talk about what it's like living with this kind of getting pulled on on both directions. So you said that no group gives the religious left a harder time than militant atheists. And so while there's certainly common ground to build between religious and non-religious activists, progressive people of faith have to prepare ourselves to deal with those who are expressly anti-religious. And then just a few pages later, you're talking about then the other direction coming from the religious right that Conservative Christians prefer not to argue with progressive Christians on the merits of faith related to equality and justice work, and then particularly, and you go on to talk about this quite a bit, that they try to weaponize this idea of a church decline. You put in quote quotation marks uh, to make us appear irrelevant, but in reality, the story is much more complicated. And so, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this dynamic of getting hit from you know both your progressive allies who may be anti-religious, and then also your Christian cohort that might be anti-progressive and what it's like living in that
0: tension. I'll take the conservative Christian because it's an easier answer, which is it's ridiculous to claim that you know the decline in, in in mainline churches is evidence of like of our irrelevance. There's a decline in the Southern Baptist Convention, and no one. There's, there's no, there's like, no one argues that the Southern Baptist Convention is not worth covering or not worth talking about their views because they've lost so many members, you know, recently. And so, and I actually think that that whole kind of, and people use it as like this kind of um, end of discussion. Like I read, I was, I picked up a book as I was uh, writing mine that was like, there's no Episcopal or Presbyterian church planting networks. They're actually, The Presbyterian church actually does have a whole, like, and I'm sure every mainline denomination has a kind of church growth mechanism, but that's used as like, you're irrelevant. And you hear that from reporters, you know, oh, those, maybe there's a few churches left, but they're all, uh, you know, the mainline has completely crashed and burned. Not true. And so I I think it's a wariness of not wanting to argue, you know, because how do you argue that Christians shouldn't care about, economics and Christians shouldn't care about that everyone has enough to eat and everyone has housing and just like respecting people's basic dignity. So instead they just say we're irrelevant. But then the, the harder question is what you read um, about kind of people that are, feel very strongly that religion has no place in in public life and politics. And that's that's really hard because people are I've spent a lot of time in organizing circles where any talk of religion is like, that's very dangerous. And that by, and the kind of um, the Trump card people play in that space is the separation of church and state like that should like uh, they would have told that to Dr. King, (laughs) like get your, get your preaching out of politics, uh, which is absurd as well. And Christians have actually progressive Christians have been, some of the people to uphold the separation of church and state as a as a value and a constitutional commitment, and there there has to be a place for people to talk about their faith as it informs their their values in a pluralistic society. But but that one's more difficult, and it's something. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is kind of walk people through things they encounter when they try to say I'm a if they go to their um, local city council meeting and said, as a Christian, I think we should, you know, uh, work to desegregate our city. Like if they were to say that they might get some pushback from people who also wanted to desegregate the city more and, and saying, don't talk about, (laughs) don't talk about your faith here. And so we need to kind of support each other and also realize you're going to get some pushback (laughs) and pushback is not always bad
1: yeah, you mentioned Dr. King, and that's one of the things you, you write about in your book is this this almost stripping away the religiousness of him, that he's become a civil rights activist and the not a reverend and, and that sometimes on the left that he is not treated as a religious figure. and, and that it's obviously something you know, I think is significant throughout your book. You, you you look, you walk through a bunch of different specific issues. And so as people read that, they'll they'll they'll, hear you telling stories, both personally, as well as other faith activists on a number of topics. But then you're also looking at this big picture, progressive philosophy. And so I wrote down a couple of sentences here. In the introduction, you talked about what this book was. And you mentioned earlier in the interview that you you call it a love letter to progressive Christians. And you also wrote that this book is for people whose devotion to God isn't about escaping hell, but about being called to co-create a just world. And then several chapters later, you wrote, my advocacy is explicitly as a Christian because I believe it is very much part of what Jesus means by sharing the good news. And so you've already started to talk a little bit about this, but it's very obvious in the book that you believe that you cannot separate your faith and your politics. You know, this is a little bit of what you're just talking about that, you know, some might say, well, why don't you just separate church and state? And that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, faith and politics that's separating faith and politics is not the same thing as separating church and state. So I wonder if you can kind of help us think more about why these are so integrally related for you.
0: For me, the the values I associate with why I call myself a progressive, the common good, the, the equality, justice, dignity, all those values were what I learned about growing up in Sunday school. And what I, you know, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, the the kind of, and, and when I look at history and we, and I try to do a lot of like uh, direct, you know, talking about different passages in the Bible when Jesus announces his ministry, quoting from Isaiah about proclaiming uh, freedom for the oppressed. Like all of that to me is my worldview. I quote FDR who was asked about his ideology and he said, I'm a Christian and I'm a Democrat and i think that does pretty that sums up my kind of views on politics and faith pretty well in terms of there i have some disagreements with the official party platform but the the kind of impulse that led fdr to say we need to enact these massive programs to ensure everybody had enough to eat a place to live you know was had the dignity of work all of that was out of a social gospel kind of reading and that's where that's what I grew up caring about. And I'm not gonna let kind of a <laughs> anti theist tell me, you know, deny my reality. And and for progressives, I think we should value I mean, we're the and the Democratic Party, which I, I'm involved with a fair bit, is the party of diversity, we claim. And in many ways, it's often the party of diversity in every way except religious. <laughs> And so we need to kind of value the diversity and and Christians are a big part of that, but also uh, people of all faiths are a beautiful part of our country's fabric. And and we should engage fully as our faith. There's often a tendency in kind of interfaith circles to dumb it down to like a lowest common denominator where we're offering these vague kind of interfaith prayers. I am not an interfaith person. What, what even is an interfaith person? That's not even a, I've never met somebody that's like, my faith is interfaith. I'd like to talk about multi-faith, that I'm a Christian, I'm engaging because I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus. This is like, forms my entire worldview. And you're, and, and part of that worldview is respecting people of other faiths, to loving my neighbor, the good Samaritan, like to, to be radically inclusive. And I think that's a fundamental part of American democracy as well. So I would just encourage everybody that it's not to, to celebrate and to celebrate that some people have a purely secular worldview and they have, that doesn't make anyone bad or, or anyone less than, but we, I'm not going to be told, I'm not, and I hope other people will resist that kind of bullying, which is what it is. And, and people have expressed that to me and it's very frustrating for a lot of people. And we we can't give into that kind of bullying to be silent about our faith.
1: Yeah. And that's one thing I think that as people read through the book, they will find that even if they disagree with you on an issue or even, you know, disagree with your entire politics. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. One thing they will not be able to say is that it's not driven by faith and it's not based on a, a very detailed reading of scripture, because there is a lot of Bible in your book. Your, your ideas and your politics are clearly built on a very strong biblical and religious faith. And so I think that that's one thing that people will find as they read through the book, that even if they read the Bible differently, even if they, if they vote differently, the argument here is that this is clearly very much a part of your faith commitment as you're living it out, and so I, I would I would say that and I think it's I think it's, it's it's healthy and helpful for us to read those perspectives, whether we agree and, and don't agree, and and you and all you and I agree on many things, and not all things. We've had Twitter co- conversations over in the past, right, where sometimes we're amening each other, and sometimes we're we're we're, uh, we're we're arguing it out a little bit, and so. But I do want to put in that word about the book that it, it very very much is based on what you're saying. You're calling it just faith. Reclaiming Progressive Christianity, and it is very much a a Bible saturated book, which again might be a little bit of a surprise for the secular left or the religious right to see that.
0: Well, they can deal with it, and <laughs> I want to. I think what you said, something in there, is very important about respecting other people come to different conclusions. There's a tendency sometimes to say those people are, um, you know, not real. I mean, I get it a lot of like. <laughs> people wanna give me like a fundamentalist litmus test of like beliefs <laughs> to, for, to like prove that I'm not a, a Christian or or it's my political beliefs are wrong. I think people come, I think it's just a reality that people read the Bible very differently. And honestly, and in, with integrity and with, out of a good faith, you know, I think people really uh, just, you know, and, and have justified a lot of evil uh, with that. But then people, honestly we i think if we we would co- we would go a long way and the and the church could actually model this for society to say like you read the bible very differently than me we're both like you said coming from a good scriptural foundation and then we can have very, we have great arguments about things in my bible study class that i lead every sunday we don't even in our little bible study class we don't always agree on, on everything and have fascinating conversations, but we're all taking the Bible seriously.
1: Well, we are deep in a presidential campaign as well as a lot of other political campaigns right now. And, and you've kind of hinted a bit at that. And I don't think it will be a surprise to anyone that you do have a favorite candidate in this race. And in fact, you've been actively promoting presidential candidacy of Joe Biden. You've been in, involved in what a group they're kind of calling uh, Believers for Biden which has some good alliteration with it. And so I wonder if you could tell us how your faith has, because this isn't in the book as much. Obviously you were writing this before the campaign and before you knew who the nominee would be. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this campaign that this book drops in and how your faith has driven you to be engaged in this presidential campaign that we're in right now.
0: Thank you for that that question. And yeah, Believers for Biden an exciting effort and i'm glad to be you know part of the coordinating committee Uh, i just got off a call with them and doing a lot of different work with many different uh, religious communities there's a whole muslim organizing initiative jewish and even within communities uh, there's an evangelical catholic there's a call with lgbtq believers and so a, a very kind of respectful Way to like talk about the diversity of religion underneath the banner of believers for Biden and that's something I I write about in the book is the need for Democrats to be more open. I kind of lament Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and her kind of she even says and I quote her about saying like I thought my you know actions would speak um, louder and I uh, and and I think after the election maybe had some remorse about not making that faith case. And I think the Biden campaign has done a very good job. I should say Biden was not my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth choice in the Democratic primary. I was a, a big fan of Elizabeth Warren uh, who talked about Matthew 25 in a lot of different speeches. Um, what she did for the least of these you did for me as kind of her guiding principle. And she's been talking about that. Anyway, I could go on and on about Warren. but. I um, I think in every election, so in the primary and the general, you have to make a determination about which candidate. Every time you go to the ballot box, do your research, find out which candidate, both in their policies and character, because both are important, because in a democracy, we need reputable people in office to affirm our democratic norms. Our society doesn't function if we don't, in a democracy, if we don't trust our... Plus, what you know, our leaders are saying is is honest and truthful, and so in the Democratic primary, that was a very difficult dis- decision for me because I like so many candidates. In the general, there is no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden is uh, his policies reflect the values, uh, my Christian values better. And then on character, I mean, it's like night and day. It's I, I can't think of and Donald Trump a, a person outside of the policies that is more kind of anti-Christian in his like, in the way he lies and the way he's only out for himself. I mean, that core Christian concept of love your neighbor as yourself is the antithesis of Donald Trump. So on character and policies and on the policies, I think it's important to say that nobody's policies align completely with either candidate. So for instance, I don't think Joe Biden's, policies on the environment go far enough. I think the climate crisis we need, you know, years ago, we needed to radically get to carbon neutrality and and just, uh, I'm a huge supporter of the Green New Deal and that kind of a, an approach. And I have to make a choice in this election between Biden and and Trump. And, and for me, there's no real, it was, it's the easiest vote I've cast since 2016, but it was also another very easy vote Hillary over Trump, and I'm glad that the majority of other Christians were with me.
1: As we close up this interview, I, I wonder if you could read a little section from your book, and, and particularly there in the chapter, the end of politics of Love Thy Neighbor on uh, page 182. Start with the the paragraph that starts on that page uh, through that section. I just wanted to give people a chance to hear a little bit of you and 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 your style, and this was a, a this chapter particularly was one that I just kind of, there were several sections. I was like, Oh, that'd be great. I'll have him read that one. So maybe we, we can close out the interview with that little section right there.
0: In the gospels, Jesus says he has come so we can live abundantly. What does abundant living mean to you? This is not a rhetorical question. What does a just society look like to you? As you think about how Jesus calls us to be in the world, we shouldn't limit ourselves to what can be achieved in the current Congress. Once we cast a bold vision, it's up to our legislators to achieve what they can in each legislative session within the boundaries of what is possible. But we need to set the goalposts that they are aiming for, for when they move the ball, the conservative goalposts are clear. Roll back every progressive advance in our collective economic and social life so that white, straight, rich men can dominate again and do this under the false guise of following Jesus. We've come to accept too many parts of our collective life as normal. Take, for example, the exorbitant spending the US gives to militarism and the Pentagon budget. What does a moral budget look like for the Pentagon? We can't end every war overnight and bring all of our troops home from overseas, but that should be the goal. A revitalized peace movement can end violence on a global scale in our lifetimes. We've grown so addicted to militarism that we can't even imagine what it would look like to have a revolution of peace where a department of peace has more funding than the Department of Defense. We need a bold vision for peace that is not dictated to stopping one to stopping one war or to small cuts to military spending. We must cast a bold plan for peace. What Reverend Dr. King called the beloved community, what Christians call the kingdom of God, what all progressive people call social and economic justice today, we have the resources to bring about a political and spiritual revolution in our nation if we just harness the political and spiritual will. I often hear religion described as a moderating force on political views. On the contrary, I feel religion often radicalizes progressives. We believe economic and social justice are divinely backed causes. We believe God wants us to join in this work of collective liberation.
1: Well, thank you Guthrie for your time. The book is out now, Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. People can get it anywhere that they buy their books.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist without an adjective. As a reminder, Guthrie's book, Just Faith, is out. You can find it wherever you buy your books. And as always, you'll find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes, your favorite podcast platform, and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give the support of this program, we greatly appreciate it, especially in this unusual year of coronavirus. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the Donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. Speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a special offer for you. Half off for your first year, just go to tinyurl.com slash If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.